You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Well, let's talk about assassinations, right? That's what you came to church to hear about. Assassinations. They've been around as long as really, depending on how you define it, you could go all the way back to the first family, right? But even if you want to put it in political context, assassinations have been around as long as politics. Even in our own country, we are familiar with assassinations. We've had four of our presidents assassinated. Lincoln, Garfield, McKinley, and Kennedy were all assassinated as sitting presidents, but there have been many unsuccessful assassination attempts as well. FDR, before he was elected president, was shot at by a five-foot-tall man who, to get the shot, stood on a folding chair, and uh, the chair collapsed, and so instead of shooting FDR, he shot the mayor of Chicago. Yeah, Harry Truman was taking a nap when two men tried to attack him on the lawn, and they were shot by the Secret Service of the time. Teddy Roosevelt was famously shot in a speech prior to his presidency, and he got up and gave the speech anyway, bleeding from his chest, and he said it'll take more than that to take down a bull moose. And I don't know about you, but I would, where are presidents like that, you know? I don't care where your political side of the aisle, I want someone who will take a shot and then stand up and still give a speech. And then there was this guy, Andrew Jackson. Now, if you're a student of history, You would understand this. Why would anyone ever try and assassinate this guy? There are estimates from historians that this man was in between, now count this, five and 100 duels. That's right. You know what a duel is. It's when two men get so upset at one another that they, they decide illogically, I got an idea, we'll meet on the lawn, pistols in hand, and we will shoot at one another. That's how we're gonna settle this argument. And he did that at least five and maybe up to 100 times. In fact, one of those encounters over a disputed race, horse race event happened and Andrew Jackson's gun misfired and the man shot him. He held his chest and then shot the man, which apparently was against etiquette. If your gun misfired, you weren't supposed to shoot again, which who makes up etiquette in a duel? But nevertheless, he did. This is Andrew Jackson, a house painter, whom the courts decided was criminally insane, at one point walked up to Lincoln on the Capitol steps, two pistols in his hand, both pistols misfired. Later, when they were taken away, they both fired the first time, so God's providence has always been around. But those two pistols misfired, and so what did Andrew Jackson do? He beat the man profusely with a cane until the authorities came. Yeah, he's a different breed. Well, planning an assassination and pulling one off are two very different things. But this morning, we not only have a well-planned assassination, but a perfectly executed one as well. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Judges. The book of Judges. If you're not overly familiar with the scriptures, start in the left. You'll get through uh, what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and then you'll make your way into this Joshua and then into Judges. And we're going to be in Judges chapter 3. Chapter 3, I'm going to pick up in verse 12. As you're turning there, let me just bring you up to speed. If you're not familiar, again, with the scriptures, if you're not familiar uh, with the Bible, this book of Judges goes through a period of time after 
one of Israel's, God's chosen people, their leader, Joshua, after he died, there was a season in which before Israel took on a king in which there was chaos, utter chaos. In fact, Judges is going to describe a cycle of history of the Jewish people, a sad cycle that goes like this. The people leave God. God gives them over to an oppressor. The people cry out. God mercifully sends a judge. There's a period of reprieve and rest. And then the people abandon God again. So listen to this cycle. The people leave God. God gives them over to an oppressor. The people cry out. God sends a judge to save them. There's a period of reprieve and rest. And then the people abandon God again. Now, as you'll move through the book of Judges, it begins, the first judge only gives his name, rank, and serial number. You don't really know much about him. In fact, all attention really goes on to who is doing the saving, and it is Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, the Lord of all creation. But as you progress through the book of Judges, the hero doesn't ever change. There's just more sort of window dressing, but the vista still remains the same. A gracious God and his covenant love toward his people, even toward his obstinate people. Well, this morning we're going to look at a second judge, and we're going to pick up in verse 12. So chapter 3, verse 12. So chapter numbers are the big numbers. The verse numbers are the little numbers. It's just there to help us navigate a really large book of the Bible. The scriptures begin with a, another sad refrain. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Sad that it picks up here. God responds, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, God does not leave the guilty unpunished. The scriptures promise us that if we rebel against God, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And that is comforting to us on the one hand, because those that have gone against God and gone against us, that have acted in injustice and unrighteousness, they will be judged. God does not overlook rebellion. He is glorified in his judgment, just like a just judge is brought honor and glory in acting justly and putting the guilty and sentencing the guilty. So is God. But it also serves as a backdrop for his mercy so that God is both glorified in his judgment and in his saving grace. And so here in this text, God brings judgment on his people and he does, throw, does so through the name of a man, Eglon. Now, another thing that is really helpful for us to pick up on and the scriptures does not shy away from is that God is sovereign even over sinful men. God uses some of the most wicked men in all of history. He uses them to accomplish his purposes, even his own enemies. And so Eglon is not a fan of God or a friend of God, and yet God will use him as his own. We have other places in scripture where we see this. In fact, God calls Cyrus uh, a man against him. He calls him his shepherd unwittingly and unknowingly used by the hands of God. So here in the text, God raises up Eglon. And look back at the text. Eglon gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Malachites and went and defeated Israel. Now he grabbed other people because Israel had this reputation. They were small in number. They were not impressive. But something always happened. When other bigger forces rose up against them, Israel prevailed. There was some sort of magical aura. Now we know. Who's behind that? But there was this aura about him. That's why the king 
Eglon, he goes and get, he gets reinforcement. In fact, the enemy of the enemy is my friend in times of war. These were not friends of his. He just needed reinforcements. Hey guys, let's go ahead and take out this Israelite people. And so they joined in and they went and opposed Israel. If you look at the text, they took, <clears throat> they defeated Israel. They took possession of the city of the Palms and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab for 18 years. Keep that time, 18 years, in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to it. It's important. Well, what happened? Verse 15, this almost seems to be unnecessary. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Of course they did. Now, it's interesting that this term does not reflect, it's used often throughout the scriptures, it does not reflect a repentance. It could be contained in that, but the, the verse alone or the phrase alone does not convey that. What it just conveys is desperation. And I think many of us have been in the room in times where we would cry out to God and ask for help, not planning on turning to God for our lives. So we're in a dire strait, maybe financially or physically, and we're looking to God and we say, God, if you'll just help me, not ever intending to turn and trust him with our lives, but just down deep in our core, we know that there is only one hope. There are no true atheists in the world. Deep down, Romans 1 even tells us it is wired within our being to know that there is a God. And when we're in the depths of darkness, we cry out to the one we know is our only hope. So that's what Israel does. So this doesn't mean that they have repented of their sin or anything like that. This just means they are desperate. And so they cry out. In verse 16, the Lord is merciful and he raises up for them a deliverer. Now, this, you can pronounce this a couple of different ways. If you're from the South, and I guess Miami doesn't qualify, right? You're a whole different, special, glorious breed. But I'm from the South, and guys would call this guy Ehud. That's probably not best. Let's call him Ehud. I think that's a cooler sound, probably closer to what he was called. So Ehud is raised up. And it's interesting that you see both the two hands of God, how he raised up Eglon, an enemy of his people, and now he raises up in his other hand Ehud to be a savior. So we are reminded of God's sovereignty over all. Well, the text tells us some interesting things about this man. A deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now these two things are not accidental or incidental. One of the things that's interesting, and maybe some of you who know more can enlighten me after this, but the Benjamites, the tribe of Benjamin in the Israel nation were known to be left-handed. I don't understand how that works genetically. I have one son, well, I have four kids. One of my sons is left-handed. No one else is. I don't know how that works. Why would the Benjamites be known to be left-handed? If you understand that, please come tell me, and uh, Eric can tell you later. This is not incidental or accidental, okay? We're going to find out more. Why? It tells us that he is left-handed. Look at the text. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him, so by this left-handed Benjamite, they sent a tribute to Eglon the king. Now this could have been sort of to try and appease him, to, to garner some sort of favor with him. We don't know why they're sending this tribute. We don't know if it was mandated or if it was just expected or what. But he sends a tribute. But then verse 15, excuse me, verse 16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bounded on his right thigh under his clothes. Now I need to pause right here. Friends, I think sometimes we misunderstand how the scriptures are written and what, what is their purpose. And we come to think of them as sort of an academic book, a historical document that is so far from the truth. In fact, most of the scriptures is a story. 
And it's the most fascinating, the most far-fetched, the most outlandish, the most amazing story ever written. And for generation after generation after generation, that's how it was conveyed. Uh, A young Israelite child would not go do his quiet time in his corner with his, you know, beautifully drawn children's Bible. He would sit at the feet of his father and his mother and he would hear stories of God. In fact, the people would gather together and they would hear someone tell the story of God. This is the context in which this story needs to be understood. So I want you to picture, maybe it's a large family sitting around after dinner. Maybe it's a community group. But this story starts to be told of their people in desperate bondage. And they're sending a tribute to the guy. So so it sounds like, so the kids are sitting around. All right, here's a story again. And then the guy with the taking the tribute made a sword. And every 8 to 14-year-old boy went, wait, he what? He made a sword and he strapped it to his leg. Oh, this is different. This is different. I want you to feel this because this is what's happening. And this is how the scriptures are conveyed. With all the drama, all the suspense, and all the humor that we try to mimic in our own stories. In fact, when you go to a Marvel movie or something like that, and you're like, wow, that's incredible. That's amazing. That's great because it's a tease. It's a tease of the power and the majesty of God, the greatest storyteller of all. We can't create a Hulk big enough to represent the strength of our God. So when you come to these stories, let it take over you. Let it amaze you. Every boy is now paying attention. Our guy, our religious guy who's going to take a tribute to the king is now packing. Everybody's on the alert. What is about to happen? So let's go back to the text. So Ehud made this sword 18 inches long, roughly bound it on his right thigh. Why would he bind it on his right thigh? Because he's left-handed. It's a cross draw. It's interesting. Why is this going to be interesting? Because in that day, if you're running security, then you're fast and you're sort of going slack. You're checking everybody's left thigh because that's where a right-handed guy would carry his weapon. Ooh, all right. Okay. He's taking the tribute. Back of the text. And he presented the tribute to the king of Eglon. King of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Hmm. Why is this in the story? Just an interesting little side note. The fat people in the Bible don't fare real well. Later, you're going to find out there's a guy who's overweight and he falls over in his chair and he dies because he's too big. Anyway, that's, that's not why we're here to talk about this. But they come to present this tribute to him. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. Now, something we need to stop here. You're going to remember this. I want you to remember the year 18. Now, I want you to remember where he stopped to turn around. Where does he stop and turn around? At what? At the idols. So he's, he's, they've presented the tribute, he and his crew. They've left. They go out by the idols. It's an interesting road mark. Stops right there. He turns around and everybody else goes. So keep in the back of your mind, okay, he turned around at the idols. That seems really insignificant. Details in the scripture are not insignificant. Just keep reading. But what I will tell you is that now every boy is about to lose his mind. Every young child is about to lose his mind. And the parents that know the story start to smile as the kids are hearing this for the first time. Because what has just happened? 
The tribute crew is now being sent back home, and the one man who we know is armed is going back in. <laughs> I was in uh, Africa a few years ago with my wife and my oldest son. He was 13 at the time. And we were blessed at the end of our trip to go on a safari. And we was this fantastic safari. We had checked off every box. The leopards, the lions, uh, we got to see the wildebeest crossing. Uh, it was just incredible. There was one, the most elusive, the one checkbox of every safari that you want to have is to see the cheetahs. We had an inside route. We had one of the persons, one of the people on staff there knew about a group of five brothers, five cheetah brothers. They're famous because they've been, they did a National Geographic kind of thing on them or a History Channel thing or whatever, whatever you do about animals. They did one of those studies on them because brothers don't stay together that long. But this group has. Well, we had a tracker on those cheetahs. So we're like, oh, I think we're going to be able to see them. So sure enough, one of the mornings we get up, 8 o'clock in the morning, we find the cheetahs. And we're excited. They're all together in a little huddle, sleeping. We're taking pictures. We're high-fiving. We've checked all the boxes. They even start to wake up and stretch. You're like, oh, how cool is this? And then one of them gets up and he walks over to the other side of the knoll Starts looking We're like, what is that? So our driver gets up and he drives around the knoll. On the other side of the knoll is about 500,000 wildebeest. And what does my 13-year-old do? He looks back at me and he was like, is this getting ready to happen? Like, is this getting ready to go down? And I'm not kidding you, those five cheetahs start stretching. It looked like a comic. It, I mean, it looked like someone had drawn it out, animated it. These, they're stretching as if you would imagine you would draw a cheetah if he's getting ready to stretch to run after something. And so everyone in our truck's like, no, sure enough, take off. And they go. And we see five wildebeest, I mean, five cheetahs take down a wildebeest this far from me to Chris. Yeah, some of the guys in here are like, that is fantastic. Some of you are like, oh, poor little wildebeest. There are 500,000 of them. But I can tell you this, the anticipation that took place in that car when my son looked at me and he went, is this about to go down? I'm like, I think this is about to go down. That's what's happening right now. Everyone hearing this story, you have an assassin going back into the king. He sent all the other people home, and now he's going back. Oh, look at the text. Verse 19, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal, and he comes back to the king. I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded silence. And even in that phrase means give me silence, meaning leave the room. And all his attendants went out from his presence. Please, friends, let this continue to go. Every kid's like, he just sent away all his bodyguards. We now have the assassin who's armed in the presence of the king by himself. Everyone's on the edge of their seat. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. So in that place, it was a lot like where we lived in California and Los Angeles. A lot of people would have, you have a rooftop setting because it didn't rain a whole lot. It was a nice climate. It would be your extra place where you have your cookouts and things like that. Well, this king's so wealthy that not only does he have the, that part of the spread, but he has like a screened in porch area. It has this cool chamber built over top. It even has a, a bathroom up there. So that's where they're, Hanging out. And he comes to him and says, I have a message for you from God. Eh, technically, that's right. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting message. And Eglon rose from his seat. Now, where, whether he rose because, hey, I'm getting ready to get a message from Yahweh. Now, he didn't care about Yahweh. You need to understand this. Uh, the, the leader, the foreign leaders in those days, and even a lot of religious people today, just want to gather as many gods as they can. 
And so for him to have sort of tribute from a foreign god wasn't, he wasn't standing because he appreciated Yahweh. He was just like, cool, I'll add that to the collection of trophies that I have. But he stands. Ehud kneels to give the tribute or the, or the statement. And so when he stands, now this is where everything goes slow motion. The story slows really, slows down like a Sherlock Holmes film. And the author is going to recount everything frame by frame. And I want you to understand why such detail. Number one, God cares about us in detail. He is intimately acquainted. He is not unaffected by our pain. He knows everything that's going on about us. That is important. But then secondly, these details are going to provide the intensity and the levity. If you think scripture isn't full of humor, you have not read it. So here's what happens. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt, that's what you hold on to the blade with, also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly. All right, pause right there. That's gory enough, isn't it? This is in the scripture, people. It's profitable. And then the dung came out. Yeah, exactly. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what you're supposed to do right now. And you're going, I did not plan to come to church and hear about this. Assassinations and fat bellies like flopping over the sword that's been impaling them. And then the dung coming out. All the Israelite children are laughing. Now they're trying not to laugh. You, know, you see what? They're going to hold it in a little bit because there's this sense in which they feel a part of the story and they don't want to give away the fact that their secret assassin is inside killing the evil king. So here we have this built up. The dung came out. Again, that's not an incidental comment. And it's not just there for extra gore like Hollywood will do. It's important. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Friends, I want you to picture this. This is like James Bond. He has just finished. He's now adjusted. He goes over to the bathroom. He washes his hands. He adjusts his cufflinks, fixes his tie, and he walks out and he closes the door behind him. Watch. Look at the text. <laughs> when he had gone, the servants came. He walks right past the guards. He walks right past the guards and everybody's going, he not only did this, he's getting away with it. When, the, when, the, when they had gone, the servants came in and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself. Why would they think he's relieving himself? Friends, I know it's not pleasant. You don't have to talk about it at lunch, but why would they think he's relieving himself? The smell. God sovereignly uses this to make sure his man gets away scot-free. And they waited till they were embarrassed. God will embarrass his enemies. When he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and they opened them and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. God will not be mocked. God will avenge all evil. And God has no problem taking out the greatest enemies in the most remarkable ways. Now, look at the text. 
Verse 26 looks like an incidental comment again. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the what? Idols. This is brought up a second time. Why is this important? Friends, I want you to know something. The idols represented where Eglon found his power. Those were his gods. They were there to do what? Protect him. And they did nothing. And they are set up as a juxtaposition for everyone to know that there is only one true living God in which you can find salvation and security, and it's not in those idols. And Eglon died because those idols were unable to do anything to stop Yahweh. They didn't move. Now, friends, this is a point where there's all a celebration that's going on as this story is being told. This is a point where Israel would also start to feel conviction. So it would be this interesting part of celebration. Yes, God. And then this reminder, the only reason that Ehud had to go in there in the first place is because God had to send an oppressor. And the only reason God sent an oppressor is as a judge because we chased after those same stupid, lifeless idols as Eglon. And so the sad reality is that God only had to save because we abandoned him in the first place. Our wandering from God is certifiably insane. We'll look back at the text. When Ehud arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. Interesting. Do you know what I would have done if I had called that meeting? I would have told him the story about what I just did, how smooth I was, how crafty I was, how I used that cool watch gadget that Q had made for me to help. What, you know, I would have talked about me, and there's not a mention of it because Ehud knew this. The only reason I was successful is the only reason that Eglon was able to be in power. The only way that we achieve anything is through God's grace. And he says this, the Lord has given your enemies into your hand. The Lord has given Friends, this is the story of the Bible. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the, hell, to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Psalm 124, our help is in the name of the Lord. Isaiah 41:10. fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is the story of the Bible. God saves. Look at verse 30. They went down, or verse 20, let's say verse 28. So they went down after them, seized the fords of Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass. And they killed that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. They stood no chance against God's people. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for how long? 80 years. How long were they oppressed? Think back, numbers. 18 years they were oppressed, 80 years they were given rest. Now, I'll just tell you this. I won't take you through the whole book of Judges because of time today. But if you do the math, there's oppression and then there's rest. There's oppression and then there's rest. Here's the tally. The people of God. In the total of Judges, they were oppressed for 53 years and they were given 200 years of rest. Be mindful of this, friends, because you'll be told the opposite. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is a God of grace and mercy and outlandish patience. Don't let anyone tell you that he's vengeful and wrathful as if that's the first thing that he leads with. In fact, when he introduces himself to Moses, he says, I am long-suffering and patient. 
That is the God of the Bible. Jesus isn't a nicer version of Yahweh. God is patient and kind and merciful. Yes, does he ultimately promise to make sure that evil will be punished? Yes. But his grace and his mercy is a far more dominant characteristic in the scriptures. It's put forward over and against his judgment. The point of all of these stories is that we are to see God as the Savior. He is patient. He's merciful. He's also mysterious. We'll just wrap up verse 31 because it's there. I figured, hey, at the end of the chapter, let me just give you this. There's another uh, judge and another victory. After him was Shamgard, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He also saved Israel. <laughs> You're thinking, what just happened? We had this really cool story with all these details, and now we have this one guy who kills 600 of Israel's enemies with an ox goad. That's just a long stick that you used to poke animals with to prod them to go. Maybe in, even an indictment on Israel. Later in Judges, it will say that they have been oppressed so often, so many times, that there was no swords or shields left. Maybe this was the only arsenal he had. But whatever, it's partly there to show how laughable it is. Right? God does that. He, makes the, he stacks the deck against him time and time and time again so he can show the power of his salvation. And that's what you have here. This is almost like a tweet representing an entire story. You're supposed to get good at this with, with the shorthand of Scripture. And so you see, you could flesh out how remarkable this story must have been. But the core of it is that God once again saved through his amazing power. And that's the point of all of these stories, to look to God for salvation. When we see our sin and our utter inability, we should look to God who is the Savior of the world. Do you see any foreshadowing here? The scriptures are a lot like, because we mimic things, that only God's the greatest. He's the great creator. He's the great storyteller. So when you find great, great stories, you're going to find there's sort of a, a, a mocking, or not a mocking, but a flattery to the scriptures by its likeness. So maybe Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or something like that is one of your deals. Have you ever watched one of those movies with someone who hasn't watched them before? And you'll both find great joy in it, right? Or reading a, a series of novels that are really well written. The first time you go through it, you're just amazed. Maybe you're amazed by the sound effects. You're amazed by the creatures. You're amazed by the, the top level. But you're amazed because it's impressive. That's the scriptures. First time you read it, you're like, wow, that is crazy. And you read it again. You read it again. All of a sudden, you start to realize other things. So it's like reading the scripture with someone who's just reading it for the first time. And you're like, oh, wait, wait till they see this. And it's, it's a little bit obnoxious when you're watching Star Wars with someone and they've seen it 50 times. And they're giggling. And you're like, why are you giggling? What's? And you're like, yo, he doesn't know. He didn't know what, where this guy's going to show back up, or he didn't know what that symbol means, or he didn't know about this. That's what happens when you start to read the scriptures. You start to hear a chord that has been played before. In, in Star Wars, what do you hear? All it takes, if you've, if you've watched the movies before, all it takes is one chord, and you know Darth Vader's near. That's all it takes. And they will subtly just play it in the background, boom, and you're like, uh-oh, uh-oh. And everybody knows that. That's what happens in the scriptures. There'll be a chord that's played. And it started all the way back in Genesis 3. There's going to be one that comes to crush evil's head. And it's going to be sent by God. And it's going to be by God. And so every time you see that there's a Savior coming to crush and conquer evil, you're hearing these chords. Then it's built on. So sure, the gospel wows you when you come to the book of John. But it winks at you and judges. Sure, in John, we know his name. 
But by this point, even in Judges, we know this. We know that mankind needs a savior. We know that it's God and God alone who can save. So that when we come to Paul's words that says, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God. That is a chord now that you have heard over and over and over again. We are unable to save ourselves, but God. Scripture tells us, as it builds out, that this one that is coming is going to be a savior, a shepherd, a priest, a faithful husband, a king, and a substitute. So that when John the Baptist stands on the grounds of Israel and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, the entire chorus hits. And everyone who should have known the Scriptures well should have dropped to their knees and been blown away. God sends a Savior. But our Savior had to die. This is where Israel missed it. They knew they were oppressed. And they knew that they were enslaved. But they, they looked to the small oppressor and the small enslavement. They thought, we need another Ehud to come and assassinate Rome. But Jesus came to die first. Why? Because he had to deal with a far greater oppressor in our hearts. A master worse than Eglon or Caesar. A curse worse than the Philistines or the Romans. He had to deal with our sin. He had to become like us so that he could take our place. He had to be unlike us in that he had to be sinless and spotless and eternal so that he could deal with the sin of all who would ever turn to him. So that's what we have. Jesus lives and walks and dies and rises so that all who turn to him and trust in him will be saved. How amazing. How amazing are the scriptures? How amazing is the God of the scriptures? Friends, may we see the foolishness of everything that is not him. May we walk like Ehud right past the idols of this world to the true and living God. There's another story in the gospel of John where Jesus had just fed thousands and thousands. He had healed countless hurting people. And then he started to preach, forsake all of your life and follow me. And what happened to the crowd that had just gotten free health care and free food? They, they left. Almost all of them left. In fact, the only people that are represented as still being there are the 12 disciples. And Jesus looks at them and he said, are you going to leave too? And Peter, who doesn't always answer right, but he always answers first, this time got it right. And he looked at Jesus and he said these words, where else would we go? And that was not a, I got nothing to go back to. Of course he did. He had a fishing life. He could have gone back. He had recognized this. There is only one hope for me. You're my only hope. You're the only one that can provide salvation. You're the only one that can bring satisfaction to my life that longs for something deeper, that can't be fulfilled in my job or my earthly relationships. You are the only hope we have. Friends, consider today that there is nothing else. Psalm 20, verse 7, will say, Some will trust in chariots and some will trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Oh, may that be true of us today. There is one name that saves us from our sin and shame. There is one name that removes our guilt and gives us life. There is one name that satisfies our deepest desires. There is one name that listens when we call, that loves us more than all. Trust in Jesus, you weary sinner. Trust in Jesus, you tired soul. Don't look to the things of this earth. Look to Jesus. He will not disappoint.
Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.